Hi everybody, welcome to the 19th Hole Golf Show. I'm Ryan Ballinger. It's good to have you with us. It's Sunday morning. Hope you're having a great weekend. Uh, there's there's going to be a lot to enjoy on Sunday, so hopefully you get to watch that and enjoy that with uh, someone you care about or in the setting of your choice. But before that, we've got the appetizer of the WM Phoenix Open, Waste Management Phoenix Open. Looks sounds like we're going to have a great Sunday. We've got Scotty Scheffler, we've got Adam Hadwin, we've got John Rahm, we've got Ricky Fowler hanging out there. We haven't had but one 54-hole leader win this tournament from the the leading position coming in on Sunday in the last five years, and guess who that guy was? Ricky Fowler. Scotty Scheffler is going for a successful title defense, which is also kind of rare in this event, although you tend to have multiple-time champions, particularly in recent memory. Think about Phil, think about Brooks Kepka, think about Hideki Matsuyama. And uh, going back-to-back is not easy at any tournament, particularly this one, the first full-field designated tournament that we've ever had. And $3.6 million goes to the winner today, and there's going to be $3.6 million going to the winner next week at the Genesis Invitational at Riviera, which was a 120-player field event. But for this year, they are allowing the entire top 125 of qualified players from the FedEx points list last year to compete in these designated events, well, that means the field is now 132. And with 132 players in the field, one of them is Tiger Woods, which is pretty wild. Tiger Woods is going to play next week at the tournament he hosts. So it'll be interesting to see how he does at Riviera. Obviously, he feels good enough to be able to try this for, for 72 holes, assuming he makes the cut. And I think a lot of people are excited about that. If you thought the field this week was good, with, I believe, 37 of the world top 50. It's even better next week with 40 of the world top 50. And I think there's not even a single eligible player that isn't playing next week. You had a couple this week. Zal Torres didn't play among them. And that's just players who might not want to deal with Phoenix. They might not like the tournament for whatever reason. They might not like the golf course or the people or the beer or whatever. Hey, that's, that's your choice. But... Next week, you really can't say that about Riviera, because Riviera isn't really a crazy place. The fans don't get nuts. They're pretty casual, LA casual. Riviera is an incredible golf course. It's one of the best architectural feats in the history of golf. And so there's nothing to dislike about the tournament. And oh, by the way, it's Tiger's tournament. So a little bit of an homage to the the greatest of all time, if you feel that way, or the second greatest of all time, if you feel that way. So... It's a great couple of weeks for golf, and then that leads into more designated tournaments because then we're going to the Arnold Palmer Invitational. We're going to the players for $25 million. We're going to have what sounds like the last WGC Dell Technologies match play that has not been officially killed off, but it it sounds like that's going to be going by the wayside and something will replace it next year. And so then we lead into the Masters. I mean, we are on a gravy train of golf between now and the Masters, and then before you know it, we're in major season, and they're just sprinkling these things in every other week between Wells Fargo and right after the Masters. Before that, you've got Harbor Town, and then you've got leading into the U.S. Open also. You've got the Memorial, and then right after, you've got Travelers. I mean, we used to talk about the, the PGA Tour schedule as the one big tournament per month, and now it's really two, maybe three, depending on the month. And that's pretty awesome. For golf fans, that's pretty great to know that you're going to get anywhere from 35 to 40 
of the top 50 players in the world twice a month at, at, a, at a minimum, because in the majors, you're going to get 50 out of 50, uh, you know, pretty much across the board, not necessarily, but pretty much 50 out of 50. So you're going to see that twice a month moving forward as long as this continues. That's that's great for golf fans. That's wonderful. Uh, the, the bad news is for tours like the DP World Tour, they're going to suffer to a degree from field loss because you're just not going to have the same kind of competition. The DP World Tour can't put up $20 million tournaments. The, what they've got are $9 million tournaments. And up until last year, that was really nothing to sneeze at. Those, that was an incredible purse, and that still gets a good number of European-born players to come over and play, a few Americans, maybe your Billy Horschels, to come over and play. And they probably still will in the fall portion of the schedule once we've now officially done away with the idea of FedEx Cup points for fall events and really turning them into a six-tournament, five-tournament Q school of sorts. That will allow these players to then decide, hey, I want to go play in... Rory McIlroy's case. I'm going to go play the Irish Open, the BMW, and then maybe go play in you know the Race to Dubai finale. If you're John Rahm, you're going to go play the the PG, BMW PGA, Spanish Open, and then the Dubai tournament. Uh, if you're Billy Horschel or Colin Morikawa, maybe you play the BMW and the, the Dubai finale. You know you're going to have access to tournaments with good purses. They're just not twenty million dollar purses, but that doesn't mean they're not going to play them. Now they'll have the access. And the time to be able to do that without necessarily having to ask for a PGA Tour release. And that's uh, that's actually a good thing, I think, for the DP World Tour that can really lean into the fall portion of the schedule. They can really align themselves so that their biggest tournaments not are all after the PGA Tour season, but many of them will be. And I think that's a smart move on their part. So things are changing you know, in the world of golf, and I think that we've taken some good steps here and obviously this was in largely in response to live and trying to keep the, the best players on the PGA tour and between the PGA tour and the DP world tour. And I think that has largely succeeded. It sounds like there are only going to be, but a few players that are moving to live, which has not announced their full 48 person roster for the season yet. But the, the two that we know are going are Mito Pereira and Sebastian Munoz. Mito Pereira is already on the live sauce talking about how great of an opportunity it is to play for $2 million purses on the Asian tour for player one player, one lucky player, or two, or whatever it is, to be, get to be able to go to live the next season. And, I mean, I suppose that's true, but you know what's even better is being able to play on the PGA Tour and not having to play for $2 million every week, but a minimum, like, $8 million. And then if you win the FedEx Cup, you get $18 million. And then if you get in the designated events... <laughs> You get to play for $20 million, like 17 times, uh, 13 times on the PGA Tour schedule, four majors. So, uh, you know, that that's going to continue to evolve, I suppose, over the next couple of weeks, and we'll see who winds up going to live. But meanwhile, the PGA Tour is starting to kind of figure out what the designated era looks like. Does that mean it's always going to look like this? No, I don't think so. I think this year was hastily thrown together, and some of it, this cash injection, is not from sponsors. Uh, we won't know the entire amount of that, but there's been talk, and I, I've heard it, and I'm sure others have, that the PGA Tour is subsidizing some of these price or price purse increases, and so they haven't gone to sponsors and said, "Hey, we need ten million more dollars. Please pay us now with you know a six week ask." They've said, "Hey, you know we we can make your tournament an elevated tournament this year, and you won't have to really do anything." 
you can just call yourself an elevated tournament, designated tournament now, and we'll front the bill, and then we're going to move it next season. And they have picked four of the most popular tournaments, best run tournaments, as a reward. Obviously, Phoenix is tremendously well run. The Thunderbirds do an incredible job running that tournament. Then you've got the Heritage, which has been around forever. It's kind of been a mainstay and continues to attract a good field despite being the week after a major championship. There's a reward there for them and for RBC, which has been a tremendous sponsor of the PGA Tour. Then you've got the Wells Fargo Championship, which has stuck around through thick and thin, not only for the PGA Tour, but also for Wells Fargo and its business. So they're paying them off by having a tournament that has also had to move around at different times because Quail Hollow likes to host major championships and big tournaments. So they they have stuck around. They're getting paid off. Travelers, uh, with Nathan Grub and the, the, the crew up there do, is tremendous work. They have turned a tournament that was kind of considered a pretty unimportant one to now being rewarded by being a designated event, at least for this year. And I think that's the way this is going to work moving forward. The good tournaments are going to get the first crack at being able to be a, a designated event. But what I would like to propose is actually taking these tournaments and making them kind of major light. And yes, you could have a couple of tournaments every year that are rotating, have two rotating tournaments as part of this series of designated events. You rotate around the schedule. You let the sponsor step up and say, hey, we're going to pay $5 million more, and the tour is going to kick in five, and we're going to be a designated event. We're going to get 40 of the top 50, or how it all washes out soon enough. Probably in about eight weeks, it's going to be 50 of the top 50. And we'll talk about that a little bit later on the show, because I think it's interesting about the world ranking. But you're going to have a world where you could have 50 of the top 50 competing in your your tournament if you have an elevated designated event. And you can rotate that around. How cool would it be for the John Deere Classic to be a designated event one year? That would be so cool for the Quad Cities. You can do it to other tournaments that just don't get the same kind of week-to-week love. Uh, You could even do it for the Zurich Classic. How cool would it be to have the Zurich Classic as a team event with 50 of the world top 50 playing for $20 million? And I realize, obviously, you're not getting 3.6 to the winner at that point, but you can even do that, and that would be totally fine. But bring this this caliber field to a market that normally wouldn't see it, I think that's a cool thing. But what I would like to add, and I hope the tour considers this, and, and maybe they're listening, maybe they're not, maybe they think I'm a psycho, but I think that they should take at least two of these tournaments, and with the impending doom of the World Golf Championships moniker, rebrand something and make these tournaments move around. Don't give them a permanent home. Bid them out. Go and say, hey, we want to bring the designated series, or whatever they want to call it, to your city. And if you can cobble together the money and the course and the sponsor, we will come. And we will rotate it around every year, and we'll bring these tournaments with the best players in the world to places that don't have a regular PGA Tour event. So you can go and say, hey, Seattle, you guys are golf crazy in the Pacific Northwest. We would really love to be able to bring whatever the heck we're going to call this thing to Chambers Bay for $20 million. Can you get a sponsor, a couple of sponsors? I know you'll bring the people. We'll get it all worked out. Bid it out. 
Then you could go to Boston, New York, D.C., places that used to have regular PGA Tour events that don't anymore. I can promise you, for a one-off, one-time engagement, you can probably find a great sponsor for it. And it could kind of be like NASCAR in that regard. Like, the designated series goes to Boston, presented by Liberty Mutual. I don't know. Name your sponsor. But do that one time. Because then that works in two different things, two different ways in the tour's favor. Tour loves to have long-term contracts, and they have a lot of their sponsors locked up for an incredibly long time. Like, through this decade, if not midway through the next. But... There are sponsors that are interested in being involved with the PGA Tour that don't want to commit to a 5, 6, 10-year agreement. And so if they agree to a one-year engagement and it goes really well, maybe they decide to get into the pipeline to be a sponsor for a longer-running contract. And as a sponsor might go go out of the rotation, thinking about Honda here, leaving the Honda Classic after, what, 30 years? You can say to them, hey, we had such a great experience doing the, the elevated event, the designated event at your location of choice. Would you like to come on and be a permanent sponsor for the long haul of this event that's available? Maybe you get some nibbles, maybe you don't. But if you farm this this thing around, I think you have an opportunity to maintain and grow your fan base because let, let's be realistic. The Portland Live event, for example, or the Chicago Live event, Those were successes because the PGA Tour doesn't go there either anymore or never did. And people in Portland are just as golf crazy as anywhere else in the country. And if you can find the right venue for one week and make it a fun tournament, really engaging, get 40 or 50 of the top players in the world, then that's going to be a huge win. It's going to be a major-like atmosphere because of the quality of field, Because it's a one-time thing, that's what makes Major special, the the three of them that rotate, because it's not always going to be there. So when it is, you go. And they could create two or three, depending on what they chose to do, WGC-like tournaments that move around and feel really, really special. That's my hope. Uh, I I don't know that they're going to do that, of course, but I think that that's where they need to kind of take this concept because it will allow them to reach more fans in places they don't go. It will allow them to reach fans in places that might be difficult to get a long-term sponsor. It allows them to go places that it's kind of difficult to secure a long-term contract to run a venue. And it, it just feels like, hey, you're you're bringing golf to the masses in a different way. Because if you look at the PGA Tour schedule and where it is situated, you have a couple stops in the Midwest bunch in the southeast, bunch in California, one in the southwest. <laughs> and that that's really the extent of it. I mean, th- there's not much of a PGA Tour schedule in the mid-Atlantic and northeast. They, they have basically abandoned that part of the world. They've never really been in the Pacific Northwest much, uh, except for the occasional BMW Championship at Cherry Hills. So that's it. I mean, it, it allows you to kind of expand your horizons and geography in a way that the major championships really can't. Because they have to be in warmer weather places. I mean, Augusta is going to be in Augusta. The U.S. Open, by the time you get to June, is going to be in a warm weather place pretty much regardless. But they've obviously decided to kind of stick to a much tighter rotation now. 
where you've got tournaments that are host sites already agreeing to like the 2030s, 40s, and into the 50s. So there really aren't many venues available. We know most of them, and there aren't many one-offs. So that's going to be the reality moving forward. The PGA Tour can do something kind of unique and position, position itself uniquely with these major light tournaments that could be really cool for entertainment purposes. Because that's, at the end of the day, what the PGA Tour is, minus the players. is serious entertainment, and you could have a, a really cool kind of atmosphere of those events. Now, I talked about the changes coming to the official World Golf Ranking, and they are huge. Uh, we, we've kind of seen this, obviously, start to take shape because of the Live Golf Invitational Series last year. There were eight tournaments. Most of the guys that signed on to Live didn't play really anywhere else uh, for the rest of the year from when they signed on. So if you signed on from the start, then you played eight tournaments, basically. I don't, you didn't do anything else for the rest of your year. So if you did that, you know, you, you probably still had close to 13, 14, maybe 17 tournaments that you played, depending on the character. But you didn't have that many tournaments in your schedule. On top of that, you didn't earn any official World Golf ranking points for any of those starts. And you're not going to this year either, from the best I can gather. So that means you got two things working against you if you're a live player. Your points are deprecating, and you aren't playing much. So if you're not earning points, but you're just losing them, obviously you go down the ranking. And soon enough, these players will be subject to what's called the minimum divisor. So the way the official World Golf ranking works is it works over a rolling 104-week cycle over two years. And it basically is a math problem of how many points you earn divided by how many tournaments you've played and your average is where you rank in the system. So if your average number of tournaments goes down, but your points go up, then you can move up. But And that's kind of what has saved some of these guys in the, in the ranking, because they earned points in the few tournaments they played that did give them world golf ranking points. And they played fewer tournaments, so they were kind of buoyed for a while. Noted exception here. Cam Smith, who's going to hold on to his points for the, it's going to look good for the better part of a year and a half, and then it will fall off precipitously. But everyone else is not in that position because they haven't done anything that has earned them 50, 60 points that allows them to kind of hang on for a while. So as the number of tournaments that they play that are ranked decrease, they are going to be subject to this minimum divisor, which is 40, which means the official World Golf ranking assumes as a professional golfer that's ranked, you are going to play at least 20 times per year over the the two-year cycle, meaning you're going to play 40 times. And if you don't, they don't let you just get by on having 32 tournaments. You are weighted for the points that you earn divided by 40, which means guys like Dustin Johnson, Louis Eustazen, Ian Poulter, Lee Westwood, Phil Mickelson, Brooks Kepka, guys that left last year and earlier on in the series are going to soon meet the minimum divisor. And that means even bigger penalties for where they are in the official world golf ranking. Dustin Johnson is now 50th in the world ranking. Well, guess where he's going to be in about eight weeks? About 400 or 500th in the world in the ranking. 
Now, that doesn't mean Dustin Johnson is the 400th or 500th best player in the world. And I don't think anyone would make that rational argument. But what's going to happen is all of the live guys, minus Cam Smith, maybe Joaquin Neiman, are going to fall out of the ranking badly. Really, really badly. Which is going to make it very difficult for the international series, which is done by the Saudis through the Asian tour and offers world golf ranking points to help buoy these players. There's no shot. It's just not going to work. So even though you have some fairly highly ranked players playing this past weekend in Oman, and you'll have it again in Qatar for the next one, that it's not enough. It's not enough to sustain. And once these rankings really take hold and take over, it's going to be tremendously difficult for Liv, even if they got world ranking points, which then you know, the World Golf Ranking could throw them a pity party and say, okay, now you can have world ranking points. You can shut down that lawsuit now uh, from the clay man. But if you, if you look at it, even if they were to start awarding points at some point, say after the PGA Championship, it, it really won't matter. It, it's not going to come back. So as a mechanism, you're not going to be able to get into the majors through live if you are a live player, at least through the world ranking. And that's a pretty big deal. I mean, the players have talked about it, but there aren't many players that are signed on to live that have the capability to play all four major championships on their own right now. You've got Brooks Kepka, obviously Cam Smith, got Dustin Johnson, and that's because those guys are relatively recent winners of majors. But Kepka's exemption to play in the U.S. Open, for example, is 10 years, right? So that ends, what, 2029 in that range, right? And then the PGA Championship, he has life access. But for the Open and the Masters, those are five-year exemptions. So he has 2020, 2021, 2022, 2023, and 2024. So after next year, he loses access to two majors if he doesn't do something in them to win them. Um, Dustin Johnson has access to the U.S. Open through 2026 as a winner of the 2016 version. He also has access to the Masters for life as a winner. And on top of that 2026 exemption, you know, it kind of evens out with the, you don't get time added for winning another major to the U.S. Open. So it doesn't time it out. Um, but 21, 2, 3, 4, and 5. So his master's exemption for winning the 2020 Masters in November of 2020 will run out before his U.S. Open exemption. Well, he's got exemptions into the PGA and the Open Championship through 2025 for the for the Masters win. So, you know, he's got it for a while. Cam Smith is in the, the driver's seat in the regard that he has won the Open Championship. So he has five-year exemptions coming up. So 23, 4, 5, 6, and three, four, five, six, and seven through the Masters, U.S. Open, and PGA Championship. He could still win one of those, and then the clock starts over again for five years, and one of them could be one of a lifer unless it's a U.S. Open, then it's 10 years. But anyhow, all those guys, their access is going to be cut off to all four majors. At best, you're going to get one, which means the opportunity to earn world ranking points is dramatically limited. And... Again, I, 
I know the world ranking takes a beating and a lot of people don't love it, but it's, it's really a, a huge thing and it term determines major championship fields. So these guys are going to have to take some extraordinary measures if they're eligible to, to be able to gain access to all four majors. It's crazy. It's crazy times in which we live, but all these guys knew it up front. They knew what could happen. They knew the penalty. They knew that's what the money was for, so to speak. And they still went along with it. So there is a lot to um, to take in in the next few months once the world ranking changes. But I said earlier that the, the elevated events, the designated events, depending on the term I interchange still apparently, the designated events are going to feature 50 of the top 50 because, well, 49, because the live boys are going to drop out. They're gone. It's their toast, except Cam Smith. So that's what the, the future of this tournament is going to be, or the designated schedule is going to be marketed as, an opportunity for the world top 50 to get together. And really, it's more than that, because most of the eligible top 100 in the world will be able to play these tournaments. There are not even going to be that many top 100 live guys moving forward in about eight weeks' time. And I wanted to write a piece about that for golfnewsnet.com. Things have been so crazy, so busy, and it, it's something that deserves proper care and attention if I'm going to write it that I haven't done it yet. So I wanted to talk about it here because it is something that's coming, and I don't think people talk about it. But soon enough, Dustin Johnson is going to be the 500th ranked player in the world, and that's going to seem really weird to a whole heck of a lot of people, and it's going to be something that is going to become a talking point in golf circles moving forward. So it's something to keep an eye on uh, here in the next couple of weeks and months as we get to the Masters and through the PGA Championship. The second half of this week's show is a conversation with architect Bo Welling. Bo is one of the hottest names in golf architecture. He's doing some really cool projects, has done some in tandem with Tiger Woods, has done his own work that just got completed at PGA Frisco, doing a course alongside the course that Gil Hance has done that has opened to rave reviews. And I really had an enjoyable conversation with him talking about the power of golf architecture, what it can do to bring people together, where the game is going, and how architecture can perhaps make golf a more inclusive game. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Bo Welling. Bo Welling joins us, Bo. Thanks so much for being with us. You're one of the hottest names in architecture, and I, I think that's a really great opportunity to talk about being a tastemaker in architecture. What, what is that like, being kind of the forefront of the projects people are talking about in the game? You know, it's funny. I don't, I don't know if I think about it, you know, being at the forefront. Um, but, you know, we certainly have been very fortunate to work on a lot of really interesting projects and uh, here recently and super excited about that. I, you know, I think uh, many, many moons ago, I was a competitive golfer, which sort of led me to this. Um, and it was sort of the test of the game, sort of greens, tees and bunkers uh, is why I got into this trade. Um, but I quickly um, started realizing that the projects I really liked were something that were so much more than just greens, tees, and bunkers. They really were about um, sort of building and promoting community, um, sort of human things of you know friendships and camaraderie. And and so I think a lot of what we're really trying to do in our work is to try to use golf and and golf developments to to try to further that, whether that be you know relationships amongst friends or family or meeting new people. Um, you know, I think that's what's what's really special. You just mentioned that you were joined Old Barnwell, which is in my state of South Carolina. And, and I think that I'm sure the golf courses will be golf course will be great. 
but I imagine that the community of people that will be there that you'll, you'll spend time with is going to be something that's going to be so super special. And so in any event, we've been fortunate to to work on a lot of great projects here recently that we think are are, are doing that kind of thing, which, uh, you know, coming out of this pandemic, I think we all realize that humans really need to be around other humans. And um, and so in any event, golf's a great way to do that. I feel like Mission has played a, an important role, certainly in Old Barnwell, but in, I hear that more and more frequently about places that are springing up, maybe not clubs that are restoring or renovating, but certainly places that are brand new. And whether that's at the municipal level, the state backed level, or whether that's a private club, it seems like the community is a big piece of that. How do you feel architecture plays a role in making that work? Make that. Yeah. So I think, so I think golf architecture is critical to that, at least in our, through our lens. And so we tend to be big tent people as it relates to golf design in, in that we really want all levels of play to be able to come and, and have fun and enjoy being together again on the golf course. And we're sort of data people. And, you know, if you look at the distribution of handicaps in the United States, you know, male or female, it's not a you know Gaussian distribution. It's not a bell curve. It's actually skewed more to the right. Um, and so there are a lot more higher handicappers than there are lower handicappers. And so I think way we approach design is we, we want to cater really to across that spectrum and I think what you have to realize is that that spectrum wants something very different out of the golf experience. So a good player really wants to be challenged and tested, but a not so good player really wants to feel like they have a chance and, uh, and to feel like it's accessible. And so to us, that really means width, uh, width off the tee and sort of dialing up strength and challenge as you get around greens and greens complexes. And if you look at this sort of money ball of all of this, the strokes gained, you know, where the better player outperforms the lesser player is really with disproportionately is with long shots. And so again, our, our take is sort of, you know, wide off the tee challenge more at the greens. And, and you'd say, well, that, that, you know, you know, can you do that? Can you challenge the best players and still have it be super playable? And, you know, my proof point number one is always Augusta national because it's exactly that it's extraordinarily wide, uh, but obviously very challenging at, at the greens and, I think if you even peel back Augusta National a little bit and read what Bobby Jones talked about, you know, he talked about wanting to have a golf experience that um, didn't overly penalize a poor shot, um, but rather created the opportunity for good shots to be rewarded. And even that offline shot, there was a chance of sort of the daring recovery is what he called called it, but always a chance to kind of get your way play back into the hole. So anyway, that's kind of what we try to do. Um, you know, one of the projects we've just finished doing is, PJ Frisco in Frisco, Texas, where the PJ of America has moved. And, and I think we've done something really cool there that um, is really going to do all these words that I'm trying to talk about in that it's going to be between the two golf courses. Gil did one, we did one. Um, yeah, I think it, there's going to be, be something really for everyone, including, you know, the short course and the golf facilities of the North Texas PJ section that are really geared towards super junior kids. Um, there's gonna be a way that people are going to learn the game of golf at PJ Frisco they're going to get better there and ultimately the best players in the world are going to contend for championships there. And so that sort of accessibility uh, is something I think that's really critical in, in terms of the golf architecture, but even the totality of the facility of it's going to be a place where even if you're a non-golfer, I think you'll feel very comfortable coming because there's a lot of entertainment and, and outdoor spaces with eating and dining and, you know, this village type area. And so I think that's a word we end up using more and more is this idea of accessibility both in terms of playing the game, but also the environment in which the game is set. 
so many questions that are going to come out of the, that set of remarks. So I'm sorry if I go in a very right. nonlinear order here. But the one that really stands out to me is thinking about accessibility as something that design can provide. And you talked about designing toward the, the higher end of the, the handicap curve, the index curve. But you also talked about trying to bring it to a point that's appealing to people who don't play golf and, and maybe want to pick up a club for the first time or the first time in a long time. How can we... As a, as a golf community, as a golf industry, get more people into the game through architecture. If we say to you, you, we don't really know what architecture is, but we'll give you something that's a good time. Sure. I mean, I think there's lots of lessons to be learned from the the, the word that everyone's using now is off course golf. So the, the top golfs and, and whatnot. Um, you know, I think one of the things that Top Golf's done a great job of doing is create an environment where even if you're a non-golfer, you're not embarrassed or intimidated to pick up a golf club and go do something. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the most brilliant things to me is that very first target, right, you know, right off that like you can top the golf ball into it and you've had success. Yeah. And so when we've been doing, whether it be putting courses or short courses, we, we very much have that in mind that if you're not really even a golfer, like there's a way you can come do something and have success. And I think that's what putting is so great because anybody can putt or, or said differently, nobody can putt. Uh, so we're kind of all putting sort of levels everyone out, but you know, on the, on the, you know, whether it be, you know, short course, uh, the swing at, at, at PJ Frisco or little Sandy, we did at Amelia Island or the hay at Pebble beach or uh, the playgrounds at blue Jack, whatever the ones we've been involved in, there's some element that you can almost play all these short courses almost with a putter. Like you, you can really play the ball on the ground and, and, and still have a, a, a modicum of success. And so I think that to me is sort of the, the lesson that we've taken away of trying to create this environment that's more accessible. It's, it's this idea that, that you can go do something and, and not really be embarrassed and kind of do it again. And so, and so we, we, in particular, it's manifesting itself with these short courses, because I think short courses, like it's an easier step to get a non-golfer or let's call it a non-traditional golfer out onto the short course um than sort of the big course but also see it as a platform to to ultimately get those folks onto onto bigger courses too and is the hope for these facilities and resorts engaging with short courses and putting courses trying to create something for everybody whether that's a guest or a non-golfer depending on the marketplace and if so are they trying to come up with programming around these facilities to then try to get people to graduate so to speak to different forms of golf yeah, I think so. I mean, I think design really takes you so far. I think, you know, how they get operated and, you know, that perception of, of what happens there and certainly the programming. And, you know, obviously the PJ of America is all over, you know, a lot of initiatives um, that we're super excited to be, you know, have a great relationship there. But, you know, whether that be, you know, PJ Junior League or, you know, some of the other outreach things they're doing, I think that's really, really neat. But, but it doesn't have to be some big, huge thing. It can be just as simple as your local club and a golf professional, like, you know, getting folks to go do this and try this. And I think uh, when we opened that uh, golf course for Omni, the short course at Amelia Island, uh, I got there the night before the opening event and I went out, it's right at dark, or perfect time to look at golf, you know, shadowy, you know, dusk. And uh, there was on the punting course was a, a, a a um, father, seemingly a father and his daughter, and they were putting. And I'm like, this is really awesome. But then I noticed that they're two two boys like doing somersaults. I mean, uh, whatever you, what is that? Was somersault, what do you call 
Cartwheels? Yeah, they're rolling around on the ground <laughs> on the putting course. And it dawned on me, like, well, these are the two younger brothers that, like, they're not even ready to pick up a putter yet, but they're out there having fun. And here's a whole family unit doing something on the golf course that maybe is not traditional, but but it's like, that to me is, like, super cool. And uh, But anyway, I think the programming is, is huge, uh, is a big part of it. And, you know, all these things are also sort of trending towards social camaraderie, you know, all the stuff I kind of talked about in, in the beginning as well. And so, you know, one of the things we like about the short courses too, is that they're really super fun for a really good player too, because right. now all of a sudden the environment is very much different. You know, it's not so much about, you know, what you write on a piece of paper as a score. Uh, it's about experience. It's about being with others. Maybe there's a, a drink in your hand, what have you, but we're also able to shape them because those expectations are different. We've been shaping them very differently, like maybe more bold, in a way that if you were on a big course where score becomes super important, like maybe you couldn't quote unquote get away with that. Um, so I think, I think it becomes a whole different type of experience. And that's why we keep using the word short course and not par three course. Uh, we keep trying to do them not in multiples of nine. We would like them to not be that because nine seems like a golf number. And, and we're very much trying to make these be something that that's a little bit different. Did golf kind of shoot itself in the foot unintentionally with uh, an era really using the buzzword of championship golf course and, and trying to make courses that felt like something a professional could or would play as opposed to something the rest of us could and should play? I think that, you know, there's always been the allure of championship golf. I mean, it goes back to the origins of the game. And and I think even to this day, like still the better player has a disproportionate say on the perception of a place because like if, if Ryan's a really good player and he likes this new golf course and I'm a not so good player, well, it must be a pretty good golf course because Ryan says it's a good, a good, good golf course. So I still think challenging that best really good player is super important. But I think to your point a little bit, you know, maybe there's an over-focus on that at the expense of thinking through sort of a bigger picture. And I think one of the things to me that's really cool about the golf industry right now is how much people are thinking about the bigger picture and uh, you know whether that be through all the stuff we just talked about you know in terms of design but even like you know some of the stuff you're you know, about to see with the you know, tgl and tomorrow you know sports and you know that's been a different presentation of golf you know the the these this you know full swing netflix thing that comes out this week um you know seeing golf on tele uh, you know film versions of golf more and more I, and just showing off in different light is, is I think is very, very important. You know, the, the National Golf Foundation, you know, numbers are really interesting to sort of peel back. But the, the two that I keep talking about a lot that I think are really cool is that if you look at juniors in the United States, that girls are now 2x what they were 20 years ago and Caucas non-Caucasians are five and a half x what they were 20 years ago. And that to me, is like that says that to me, like, we're expanding our universe and that's, you know, that those numbers are much higher than the existing, the totality of the numbers. So that means that the totality of the numbers are going to change as these, these young people get older. And so I think that's, that's really, really cool. And, uh, you know, Seth Wall at PGA of America says it, I, I won't, I need to copy it down because I really like it. I probably won't say it exactly right, but, but he says something on the lines of, you know, maybe we in the golf need to start looking more like the rest of the world and at the same time, maybe we can start to have some sort of an influence on the rest of the world. And I, I think that really, to me, encapsulates a lot about what I'm excited about in terms of golf right now. You know, this game's been something that's been 
super special to me in my life. You know, half my friends are people I grew up with on the golf course, half my memories are with my, with my father on the golf course, but instilled, you know, work ethic and values and integrity and honesty. And, and so like, we truly believe that we're a value-based sport. Like why wouldn't we want to, to sort of expand our circle uh, and sort of help spread, you know, the, the good things that we, we do have going on in the sport. Um, but, 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 but also be influenced by newer people coming into the game. Are there concepts that you would like to try in your work in, in architecture that maybe you just haven't found the right person for yet or the right backer for? And, and cool. if, can you illuminate on that if that exists? Um, I have one really crazy idea that I would like to do, but I, I, I probably I probably don't want to say it. But, <laughs> um, but I, do, I do. I do. I really do. Um, but I think we're about to do a golf course with Tiger down in Cabo San Lucas, Mexico that we're going to put uh, basically dwarf zoysia grass pretty much everywhere. And so it's going to play so incredibly fast. Um, I'm super excited about that. You know, and, you know, in some ways it's going the opposite of, you know, keep trying to make golf courses longer and longer for these faster and faster swing speeds. But I think when you get that ball moving on the ground, that to me is when golf gets super interesting because now you're really having to use your mind and your creativity um, is to, to figure out like what's going to happen with, with the shot as opposed to just I'm 152 yards. Therefore I hit an eight iron, you know, as high as I can in the air. Um, so, so, so more linksy kind of golf. I think that to me is, is the most interesting version of golf. And so I think having these, you know, opportunities to either work in true links land or in, you know, conditions that sort of simulate that. I think that's something that's always going to be something special. I'm passionate about. And you as a golfer, have you, change what interests you about playing golf, whether that's competitively, recreationally over time. Because I, I feel like the older that I've gotten, the more interested I have gotten in trying different ways of playing golf instead of hitting, like you just said, I hit a moon ball, hit stock eight irons all day to the center of the green. Yeah, I mean, I was a bit fortunate in that my mother's half Irish and, and I lived in Ireland for a while and so played a lot of links golf uh, as a younger person. And so that's always been something that I just think is so much more interesting than this other version of golf. And so I, like, I'm one that like wants to play that way, even when the conditions maybe don't even necessarily <laughs> merit playing that way. I think, you know, the idea of like, Hey, I want to you know hit a seven iron and cause it's windy and try to hit it with limited spin. Like that's interesting to me as it just yeah. opposed to whale at something as hard as you can. Um, so there's probably that. And then, you know, I I'm all in on the short course stuff. I mean, I've, I'm busy, um, and so, you know, from a time standpoint, you know, going and playing 18 holes isn't necessarily in the wheelhouse all the time, but to run out and go play 10 holes or 12 holes on a short course, like I got time to do that. And so it's, it's been a way to kind of keep me playing more and I really, really like it. And, uh, and, and again, it sort of, it takes away the, 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 the shots that are harder to stay good at, I think. And, um, and again, it gives you a chance to have, have some success. So I probably play as, as much short course golf now, it seems like, as I do the you know, regular big golf. All right, one last question. For, for facilities that aren't building that new, maybe they're deciding to make renovations or restoration projects, whatever they choose to, to go in the direction of, what, what advice would you give them when they're kind of addressing something like this in terms of what they want to accomplish for either their constituents or membership and what's the best way to get that out of the process that they're, they're trying to go through? Yeah. I mean, when we do work with existing 
asset places. We're we're big into a, sort of a stakeholder engagement process, and we're really about setting goals and objectives of like what are we trying to accomplish. And most renovations sort of start from you know needed capital improvements with golf, so-called golf course infrastructure, whether it be irrigation, drainage, you know, bunkers, greens, tees. Um, and so, but the golf in the world are changing things. And so to, to us, like the time to think about design change to an existing place is, is that time. And, and when you have a multi-stakeholder, whether it be members or, you know, municipal setting, whatever it is, you have lots of people, lots of different opinions. And so I think engaging in a thoughtful way that allow people to be heard, not that you can run these projects like a democracy, but but I think people like to be heard and it gives you the opportunity also then to educate, you know, stakeholders as well about, you know, certain considerations and factors and, and whatnot. And so we've had an incredible amount of success um, in working with existing clubs and courses, but it's because of this sort of process. And it's, so, it's to some degree it's change management sort of process. Um, but you got to realize that the game is changing and, 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 and can, will continue to change. And I think one of the big things I would say to what people should focus on is be keenly aware of teeing grounds and approaches into greens, because what we found, this kind of goes back to your point about championship golf. So for the longest time, it was make it harder, make it longer, whatever. But what's happening is people are playing golf longer and longer, uh, just to health and whatever, but their swing speeds are getting slower and slower. And so they're still able to play, but they can't play from the distances that they used to play from. So everybody's needing, the older folks are needing to move up. And so and at the same time, they're hitting shots that are much lower in trajectory into greens because of slower swing speed. So the idea of having the ability to have shorter tees and for the ball to be able to bounce up onto a green, that will keep people playing golf longer, I think, because if it gets to be where I can't even hold a green, um, then why would you want to go play, right? And so, and so I think what all, all the places we're working at, we're, it's like we're trying to gain length when we can because young guys have faster and faster swing speeds, but we're doing a lot of extension of forward tees uh, because we have these slower swing speed folks. And so you don't want at the same time, you know, having tee boxes everywhere. So we've started to gravitate toward more of this ribbon tee or lawn tee where it's just sort of continuous teeing ground and, and it gives operators, you know, extreme flexibility in terms of how, how they set things up. Last question, because this piqued my interest to your answer. It sounds like, and, and I know this would probably be true, you have a lot of different kind of roles and titles under golf course architect, whether that's expected Oracle, change manager. You know, what what are those different roles is your favorite in in the jobs that you do? So I come from a long line of accountants, and this is probably <laughs> not the answer you're expecting. And so my, my sort of conservative grandfather uh, would sit me and my sisters around the dinner table every Sunday and point out that the food before the family was the result of the family's hard work for the clients, whether it be that week or that year or whatever it was. And I think that's stuck with me in, in it's very much in my DNA and thus our firm's DNA. So to answer your question, it, it's, it's very much feeling like, hey, we're working for a client, whether that be a developer, existing club, municipality, you know, institutional organization. Uh, but to feel like we have we, we've been able to serve our clients and help our clients meet their goals and objectives. And that, of course, can manifest itself in all these different ways that you're kind of alluding to. But I think that's sort of always the starting point for us. Um, you know, it's it's really like truly trying to understand what are our clients trying to, to accomplish and 
and then try to use our skills and our expertise to help them go do that. Well, Bo, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. It was a lot of fun, a great conversation. and Hopefully we can do it again someday soon. Anytime, Ryan. Thanks, man. Thank you again to Bo for joining me. Uh, we had a really good time talking about golf architecture. I could have gone a lot longer, but I, I said 10 to 12 minutes and obviously it didn't turn out to be that long. So it was very kind of him to stick around and keep talking to me for as long as we did. Hope you enjoyed that. Next week on the show, uh, we'll find something to talk about. I don't have anything pre-planned. Just kind of see what the world brings us over the next few days. But we'll record it over the weekend once again. And we'll have, obviously, plenty to talk about with Riviera. And I'm sure some other stuff will be bound to come up in the next few days. So thank you for listening. I appreciate it. I've been Ryan Ballingy. We will talk to you next time on the 19th Whole Golf Show.